My dearest Lolly, you wrote a very interesting letter that I received yesterday. That was a wonderful dream of yours. Indeed, would it only come true? Your auntie has just bought a dream book. I must look it over about goats. Well, on Monday, I went to Mrs. Hood's and left my dress. She finds she will have ripped the skirt apart entirely. It is too short on the sides. The back seam puckered, etc. She will charge one dollar for doing it. I shall be thankful to have anything. Your auntie has had a bad toothache and has gone twice to Dr. Smith. He's going to kill the nerve. She seems to like the man. I suppose any letters for you must have come straight, for nothing has got here. There's great excitement in New York over the failure of the Equitable Mortgage Company. Liabilities, $16 million. Our vines were dreadfully whipped by the last storm. Bert Butler told the captain that the reason there were no young men at Lake George is that this year none of them have any money to go anywhere. Frank Cuthbertson, just back from Saratoga, says there's no crowd there and hotels are losing heavily. My dearest, I shall be so glad to see you on Wednesday. Your mama. I'm Pamela Banos, in collaboration with the Alice Austin House Museum, and this is My Dear Alice, a podcast series that explores the life of photographer Alice Austin through her photographs and these letters that were discovered decades after her death. You'll find images of some of these letters, along with photographs referred to here, at the website that accompanies this podcast. That's mydearalice.org. Chapter 6 After Henry Gilman's death, right before the Christmas of 1893, his presence disappears from the letter collection and he is never spoken of again. And other than Alice's mother's letter's brief mention, there is no reference to the nation's or New York City's economic troubles. One resource says that New York's unemployment rate was near 35%. And although history shows that America was in a depression from 1893 through 1897, there is no evidence of strife in the letters that came to Alice at Clear Comfort. But Austin's photographs do take a shift. Bessie Strong reported that Alice's photographs of the Chicago Columbian Exposition were on display in a New Brunswick, New Jersey bookshop, and they also drew the interest of a small group of women who lived near Washington Square in Manhattan. At the end of 1893, Austin had registered for the copyright of 25 of her Chicago photographs. A few months later, a Miss Isabella King placed an extensive order for herself and her friends. My dear Miss Austin, I have the following orders for some of your delightful photographs of the fair. Mrs. King wants numbers 2, 7, 8, 9, 10, 24, soft finish like engraving and unmounted. Miss Page wishes numbers 5, 9, 7, 17, 24, mounted and engraving finish. I do not know what you call it technically. This is the only reference in the archive 
that shows the extent and variety of printing that Austin did with the specific intention to sell her photos. These were all copyrighted photographs. And numbers eight and nine, solid paper, unmounted. Will you send me word how much they all come to and I will send over a check for the full amount. If you would specify each account, it would be a great help to me in collecting from the others. Miss Page's address is Miss Manuela Page, Care Sir William Lane Booker, Brevort House, New York. Then, Miss Fanny Norris, 30 Washington Square West. Mrs. King's can be sent with mine to my address. Very sincerely yours, Isabella C. King, 7 University Place. A couple of weeks later, and a first for her, Austin became a New York street photographer, wandering through Lower Manhattan, photographing what she would eventually call street types. Loaded up with 4x5 glass plates and a bulky camera, some say up to 50 pounds of equipment, she ferried over from Staten Island and sought out workers who plied their wares and services on the street. A knife sharpener, a flower seller, boot blacks at their shoeshine stands, a newspaper boy, meticulously annotating the plate's envelopes that show she was at it for two hours. She will continue with this work for several years, also visiting Lower Manhattan, photographing Eastern European immigrants at street markets and other itinerant workers who would pose for her camera. Austin's friends' families were wealthier than her own, and other than seasonal enterprises, her women friends mostly did not work. As this group of friends approached the age of 30, except for the few who had married, they each still lived in their family home. In 1894, Claire Comfort, Alice's home, housed six members of her extended family, including her now elderly grandfather, John Haggerty Austin, who purchased the property 50 years earlier. In a shrewd business move in 1850, six years after that original purchase, and just months before Austin's family auction business filed for bankruptcy, the title to clear comfort was turned over in trust to his wife, Alice Austin's grandmother and her namesake. This protected the real estate from any business creditors. It was a smart move also, because another of John's businesses went bankrupt in 1868. This did not prevent him from his yearly European holidays. But that following July, on the day he was leaving Paris for Switzerland, he wrote, I've spent money here only for clothes, photographs, and stereoscopes. In this last, I have a full collection. I made it a point to obtain them of every object that has pleased me. There is nothing in my judgment so well worth the money. Alice was three years old that summer, and it may be no wonder that her interest in photography took hold. Incidentally, John Austin repeatedly referred to stereographs as stereoscopes in his letters. A stereograph presents two photos side by side that, when viewed through a stereoscope, creates a three-dimensional image, a sort of Victorian virtual reality experience. By the time Alice Austin's grandmother drew up her will in 1884, she died three years later. More real estate had been bought and sold in her name. Her will explicitly stated that Clear Comfort would stay in the family, naming Alice as the ultimate benefactor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 1894, the same year she began photographing workers in Manhattan, and just months before John Austin's death at 83, Alice got interested in buying a piano. 
This gives us the opportunity to explore more aspects of this unique family and appreciate the nearly comical seriousness to her endeavor. An 1860s vintage Steinway upright piano appears in a photograph of Clear Comfort's parlor in 1887, but it's gone in later pictures. An 1875 newspaper article references Alice Austin's Auntie Min and Uncle Oswald Miller, and what sure sounds like this piano on an extraordinary voyage around the world. There is now lying in the port of New York the American ship Agra, in connection with which vessel there is an eventful history of an American piano. The vessel was owned by Captain Miller who sailed her and the companion of his long and arduous voyages was his wife, an accomplished pianist. In the month of April 1871, an American upright piano was placed in the cabin of the good ship Agra by her captain for the use of his wife to beguile the tediousness of the long sea voyages intended to be taken. In the latter part of the month, the vessel sailed from New York direct to Melbourne, Australia, thence to China, Japan, and India, returning to New York after an absence of 15 months. You might remember Auntie Min's poem from the first chapter of this podcast that she sent to her brother Pete with a coin from Canton, signing off. And now, dear Tim, keep a good lookout for me, and I will keep my eye skinned for thee. Your sister, Mrs. Oswald Miller. Great on the pen, but poor at the tiller. 19th of May, 1872. Hoop a doodle doodle doo. The article continued. In September 1872, she left again for another voyage round the world, going first to Melbourne a second time, thence direct to London, England, then to Norway, when she returned direct to Melbourne, then to San Francisco and China, and then back to New York after an absence of two years and five months, having traveled over 110,000 miles, having crossed the equator 10 times, and passed the Cape of Good Hope five times, and Cape Horn nearly as many, while enduring, as a matter of course, innumerable storms and every vicissitude of climate changes. During the entire period, this American piano has remained on shipboard, screwed down to the floor of the captain's cabin, and has never left the ship until recently, when the vessel being sold, it was landed. During the whole time, the instrument has been played upon by the captain's wife every fair day. It is almost needless to add that the instrument in question was one made by the most renowned piano makers of the world, Steinway and Sons, whose instruments defy wind, weather, and climate changes. Captain Miller certifies his conviction that for use on shipboard, there is nothing which can compare with a Steinway upright piano. The particulars of this newspaper article lead us to the letters that Alice saved from the piano tuner who was assisting her in the purchase 20 years later. Dear Miss Austin, I called at Steinway's on my way home tonight and after looking at the stock can find nothing to equal the one selected first. It has received its final touches from the chief regulator and never was a piano more beautiful. 
I send you here an interesting piece of literature reserved by the firm, which you may find interesting. Remember, your piano has to live, for all practical purposes, on the water, so near as your residence to the sea. Let me know your decision as soon as may be, and believe me, cordially yours, Frederick E. Jones. Two weeks later, she was apparently not convinced. Dear Miss Austin, in order that you may clearly understand the difference between the Steinway and all other makers of pianos, I venture to offer this suggestion. Ask them to take apart the piano and show you the action. You will find that all the working parts of the Steinway rest on square tubes of brass, solidly filled with wood, together forming with the metal brackets a rigid action frame of good strength, and one in which cannot warp with damp or change of temperature. No other piano has this metal return frame, and as the instrument you may select has to stand a larger variation of climate, you may easily understand why I mention this fact. I venture to write this because I know full well how many different pianos one hears about when about to purchase, and how little the average musician knows of the intricacies of piano building. I can say no more. May your choice be wisely directed, and I hope to hear the tuning of the new piano be what it may. Cordially yours, Frederick E. Jones. He wrote again, following hers three days later, sounding slightly exasperated. Dear Miss Austin, I have just inspected the Grand. It is as fine a specimen of Steinway and Son's work as I have ever seen, and I feel assured you cannot but feel pleasure therewith. It is a perfect piano. Again, I say, ask to see the action of the other pianos you may look at, and may you be wisely guided, even as I said before. Cordially yours, Frederick E. Jones. The following week, Alice's grandfather died, and over the next days, Alice received multiple condolence letters. First from Violet. 351 Lexington. My dear Alice, I was so glad to receive your note. You know how deep my sympathy is for you and how much this means. With my best love for you and most heartfelt sorrow for you and yours, I am your affectionate friend, Violet M. E. Ward. Then from Bessie Strong. My dear Alice, Saturday's Tribune brought us the news that your grandfather had passed away. From what you said when here, I knew you thought the end not very far off. But death is always a shock, even though not entirely unexpected. I know what a gap this will make in your household and how you will miss your grandfather, for he was so devoted to you. And Julie Brett. My dearest Lolly, today I was so surprised to hear of your sad loss. And it will be a relief to you all, but even then, death is always so sad. Even when we can see how much better off the one that bears so is. And then Julia Martin. Dear Alice, I was indeed very sorry to hear of your grandfather's death, and yet felt glad that the old man passed away so quietly and has not longer to linger on. Life to me is one great mystery of uncertainty. One minute we are here, the next away. And then Frederick Jones, after a nearly month-long lull, wrote again. Dear Miss Austin, someday when you have time, I should be much pleased to hear which piano you selected, the Chickering or the Steinway, and your reasons, therefore. I have much faith in your own good senses, but 
know how one's ear is apt to be misled in these matters, especially when both instruments are new and in fine rooms, acoustically speaking. However, whichever piano you chose, I wish you much enjoyment therefrom, and beg to remain yours cordially, Frederick E. Jones. Alice filled Jones in on her family situation and made it clear that she still had not made up her mind, and she had further very particular questions, asking about Steinway's pedal action, the wolfing or shivering effect in playing two notes together, and some details in regard to muting. In hearing the piano tuner's response, I cannot help but think of the report of Auntie Min Steinway's impeccable sound after traveling at sea for several years. Dear Miss Austin, yours is at hand, and I can only sympathize with you in the passing of Mr. Austin. With regards to the question you ask about the piano, I will answer as follows. I have carried Steinway Grand Pianos 30,000 miles in a single-season concert tour and have never known the sustaining pedal to get out of order. In a piano, the adjustment thereof is so simple that the mere turning of a couple screws sets the metal bar immeasurably in position. The wolf of which you speak is merely a matter of fine-tuning and is therefore easily eradicated. With regard to the muting of which is called the duplex seals, I reply that occasionally a piano is found in which from perhaps a softness of the metal capodiastro bar or iron upon which the strings rest, a slight jingling will occur and then the duplex has to be muted, but this is very rare. It is but reasonable that you should seek all possible knowledge as to the piano you purchase, and I am only too glad to answer to the best of my knowledge. As I said before, I have carried Steinway pianos 30,000 miles in a winter and have never had any trouble therewith. I think this covers all your inquiries, and I can only say that if I can serve you any further, you may call upon me, even to again look at the piano before it is shipped. Cordially yours, Frederick E. Jones. Alice did end up buying the Steinway, a stout baby grand piano that she photographed in Clear Comfort's middle parlor. In mid-July, Bessie Strong acknowledged the piano as they were again trying to negotiate a visit. She sounds notably contemporary in her mention of smallpox and getting vaccinated, and it is important to note that Austin's home was very near to New York's quarantine station, actually the nation's quarantine station, as it was the place that stopped incoming ships in New York Harbor. Austin would soon be hired to photograph the facilities and would continue doing so on and off for more than 10 years. It is a particularly compelling and historically significant group of photographs, but more on that in a bit. My dear Alice, thank you for the invitation to visit you in August. I really think I can come this time, and about the middle of the month will be the most convenient for me. I will go to you for a week or ten days, that is, provided the smallpox is not very bad near you. The papers are full of it, but I know those things are so often exaggerated. However, I suppose I shall have to be vaccinated, and I dread it like poison. I am in a rundown condition anyway, and I do not think vaccination will make me feel any better. Four of us had a delightful row on the river last night. The only drawback was the mist, which was highly suggestive of malaria, but the moon was superb. Please, when I come to you, do not attempt anything for my entertainment. Just let me be quiet and enjoy your society. I'm anxious to try that new piano. Shall bring some duets and we can practice together. By the end of the summer, the novelty of the new piano had worn off, 
and a new bicycling craze was gripping the New York area, also grabbing Alice and her friends. She was spending time with Violet Ward, and the two of them being athletes, and also very serious in their individual ventures, they decided to spearhead activities by teaching riding and forming a bicycle club. Trude Eccleston was back in California with her sister's military family, stationed now at the Presidio Military Post by San Francisco. We are now arranging a party to go up to the Lick Observatory and spend a night. Papa, of course, is crazy to look through that wonderful telescope at Mars, and he wants me to also. So we have decided to make up a party and have a jolly time as well as instructive. How I wish you were here to join us. I know of no one who would enjoy such a trip more. The first week of September, Trudy wrote Alice a 10-page letter going on about all of her adventures, also describing the gorgeous ocean, tennis fun, and dances, leading to what I thought was a logical response. Alice wrote to Trudy's sister, Edith, asking if she could spend the winter with them in California. Edith wrote back with regrets that she really could not. It was probably just as well because Alice was also busy with her new obsession. Trudy ended one of her letters. How do you succeed as a bicycle teacher? Alice was spreading the word on this new venture while she also continued to print and share her photographs of Chicago's World's Fair. At the end of August, she received a letter from Thomas Brown, AKA Butterball, who she'd accompanied on the canal trip a couple years earlier. A sailor and adventurer, he wrote from Yellowstone Park in Wyoming. They had an unusually casual relationship, sharing nicknames and exploits. In one of the canal trip photos, Alice appears to be blowing into a conch shell, apparently earning her the nickname Gabriel, the biblical hornblower. He addressed his letter to Cher Mademoiselle Gabriel. He told her about camping in the snow and spoke in detail about the mountains and rock formations. He said that he had seen five large geysers. The main point of the letter was to thank Alice for sending him photographs. She had included at least three photos of Chicago's World's Fair and she asked him what he thought of her bicycle club, to which he replied that it seemed to him an excellent thing, adding that he believed in having girls do something more than sit in a rocking chair all day and eat sweets in the Spanish fashion. He suggested if she were to do any more sailing with Commodore Ralph Monroe to let him know about it. He signed his letter, D. Butterball, ex-first mate, Yacht Waboon. In fact, Alice was about to embark on another jaunt with Commodore Monroe, and this time, Violet Ward would be joining her. The two of them left in late September, staying with one of Violet's relatives in New Jersey, near the point where they'd be disembarking. After receiving correspondence from Alice, her mother immediately returned a letter to her there. The nonstop communication between everyone is striking, and with the time gap in transmission, there's an elongation of time that echoes leisure. Today, our emails and text messages feel clipped and compressed, reiterating the speed and efficiency that feels chaotic in comparison. My dearest Lolly, I was so glad to get your note this afternoon and to know that you find the trip so far pleasant. 
She caught Alice up on the mail she'd received and, of course, gave her the weather report, news surrounding clear comfort, complimented her, and encouraged further travel with Violet. It has been very warm here. Today, hot, sticky, and cloudy. The marigolds are a perfect show, and such a pretty pink zinnia has come out. I see by the paper Lena Case and her husband and Julia Crawford are all in Europe at Aix-le-Bain. I wish you and Violet would go to the other side together. You would do it up thoroughly. Of course, you must go on the trip as far as you find it pleasant. Your hotel was very cheap. I was afraid you have not enough money, though, to go very far. But you are a wonderful manager. Good night, my dearest. Your mama. Regards to Violet. There are several mentions that indicate the Austin's finances are strained. John Austin died without a will and with no possessions in his name since the property had long ago been signed over to his wife, whose own will had left everything to their children. And although Uncle Oswald was still working, the family was basically living on the estate she left behind when she died in 1887, including money set aside for the upkeep of clear comfort. Alice and Violet sailed with Ralph Monroe and another man along the same route as Alice had with her Aunt Nellie and first mate Butterball. Like before, they disembarked at Annapolis, where this time Alice photographed the local oyster trade. Trude Eccleston, still with her sister's family in California, wrote, What a lovely time you are having this summer. You always fall on your feet and have a good time every year. I wish I could have had some of those lovely sails with you and Violet, but gypsies you have become. Then a few days later, Julia Martin wrote in reference to Trudy, Trudy wrote me a very nice letter in answer to one of mine. She wrote to me all Staten Island had gone mad over bicycling, and she should have to go mad too. You all must be having a great time and lots of fun out of it. Give my love to Violet when you see her, and remember me to her pal. Violet's pal was likely Daisy Elliot, and the innuendo will soon be reinforced by Daisy's letters. One day in October, Alice made double self-portraits with Violet in their sailing outfits, which she called her canal costumes, pom-pom berets and dark woolen skirts and sweaters, and then in their bicycling outfits, belted skirts with white puffy sleeve shirts and loose bow ties with straw boater hats. Alice, Violet, and Daisy would soon begin working together on a book that Violet would publish called Bicycling for Ladies. You'll recall the thoroughness of Violet Ward's patent application for a modified bodkin. Her bicycling book demonstrates equal thoroughness. Here's a preview from that book and an idea of what's to come. Chapter one, possibilities. Bicycling is a modern sport, offering infinite variety and opportunity. As an exercise at present unparalleled, it accomplishes much with comparatively little expenditure of effort. As a relaxation, it has many desirable features, and its limitless possibilities, its future of usefulness, and the effect of its application to modern economic and social conditions present a wide field for speculation. Bicycling possesses many advantages and is within the reach of nearly all. For the athlete and the sportsman, it opens up new worlds. For the family, it solves problems. For the tired and hurried worker, it has many possibilities. 
The benefits to be derived from the exercise cannot be overestimated, and the dangers that result from overdoing are correspondingly great, for it is easy to overexert when exhilarated with exercise and unconscious of fatigue. This episode featured the following voice talent in their order of appearance. Roy T. Butler, Ella Stevens, Josh Ippel, Tom Banos, Christina Bragalone, Nicholas Kinney, Madeline Bagnall, Natalie Welber, Sidney Hastings-Smith, Liv Glassman, and Rachel Hilbert. Sound editor, Kendall Barron. Original music by Nicholas Rosa Palermo. Other music from Freesound, The Edwardian Pianist, and other public domain and attributed sources. Links are in the website that accompanies this podcast, where you'll also find images of some letters and photographs that are referred to in each episode. That's mydearalice.org.